0: Hey there, welcome to Dirt Rich, seasonal conversations about food and farming. I'm Jonathan Kilpatrick, soil health lead for the Sustainable Farming Association. Today, I'm joined by Jeff Duchesne, the state grazing specialist from the USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service, or NRCS. Our conversation today is about grassland agriculture, the NRCS and programs they offer, and the current drought. Thanks for joining me today and welcome to Dirt Rich, Jeff.
1: Thanks, Jonathan, happy to be here.
0: Well, yeah, I'm really looking forward to this conversation with you and uh, it's been fun as I've been working with SFA for the last uh, little over a year to run into you all around the state at different events. And so I'm actually looking forward to hearing a little bit more about your background and uh, what you do for the NRCS. So uh, yeah, why don't you just start us out with your background uh, growing up here in Minnesota and just how you kind of your story of how you got to being the state grazing specialist.
1: Yeah, that sounds good. So I, I grew up uh, in the Sauk Center area in uh, Stearns County, kind of central Minnesota. I guess by the time I was growing up, it was a hobby farm at that point. But, you know, I had a lot of friends at dairy farms, and uh, so I did uh, quite a bit of work on dairy farms growing up. And I I went to, uh, so after high school, I went to Vermilion Community College up in Ely, Minnesota, a couple of years and then I went out to the University of Idaho and uh, finished up my bachelor's uh, degree out there. So um, I have a degree in ecology with a minor in rangeland management so that my focus out there was really on uh, rangeland management at the University of Idaho. So Eventually, I moved back to Minnesota. Uh, you know, I had a couple of other jobs, but I took a job uh, with the uh, Fillmore Soul and Water Conservation District in Southeast Minnesota as a grazing specialist. And so, you know, I had, a, you know, the collegiate background for this, but of course that only takes you so far. Um, then you have to learn how to actually apply those, uh, the principles. Right. <laughs> so... <laughs> you know, that that first job there really, uh, or that particular job really set the stage for how to apply grazing management principles. So um, I learned from, uh, you know, other soil and water district staff, other NRCS staff, uh, other NRCS grazing specialists um, that were employed with the agency at the time. And then really just learning from producers. uh, One of the First things I worked on that summer, uh, the the local NRCS technician at the time had just given me a list of producers they had worked with over the years on grazing management and just told me to call those producers and learn from them what they've done. So I met with them and kind of figured out what worked for them, what didn't work, and really started to uh, apply that with uh, to new operations. And and now of course, that's built upon itself uh, throughout my entire career since then, where, you know, you just as you work with more and more producers, and, you know, both, both on new projects, but also there, you know, I think every producer I've, I've worked with over the years, I've learned something from um, and just Learn how they manage and, and good ways to manage foraging and pasture and grasslands.
0: Awesome. So, what was it about growing up on the hobby farm in central Minnesota that drew you to a career in ecology, rangeland management? And how did you end up going to Idaho? There's a lot of rangeland programs out there in the West. You know, there's some good names out there. I'm just curious how, how did you end up in Idaho?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> I never thought I was going to end up in Idaho. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, it's a great place to learn rangeland, man. It's a beautiful state. I'm just, you know, there's a lot of rangeland programs, so I'm just curious.
1: Yeah, yep, and and just in general, um, you know, deciding what to go to college for. I mean, it. I always like being outside and and working outside, so I started looking at things in kind of the natural resources type field. And, you know, of course, I went up to Ely, which really focuses a lot on, you know, forestry and, and not just forestry, but wildlife and fisheries. and Mining, maybe. Well, yeah, yeah, probably some of that. Interesting. But yeah, more of the just natural resources side of things, not necessarily uh, agriculture up there. And then uh, just going to University of Idaho, I thought when I started out there, I was a double major in ecology and rangeland management and just with, uh, for time and money reasons, I had to kind of pick one or the other to kind of finish up and get into the workforce. But right. I really, the agricultural side of things really appealed to me more of the, the grazing rangeland management side of things, uh, growing up around agriculture. I think that that really appealed to me and why I focused more that way when I went to school out there as opposed to uh maybe sticking more in the um you know, more natural resources or or wildlife or you know, some of those other avenues you could go uh in this general field. So
0: sure.
1: And the conservation side of things. And that's and of course, even with these different degrees, there's lots of different avenues, you could look at, you know, Fish and Wildlife Service or DNR Forest Service. But I really liked uh, the uh, voluntary private lands conservation side of things more so than uh, working on public lands. Um, so that's maybe how I got more into like the soil and water conservation districts and natural resources conservation services, just the idea of Working on voluntary conservation with private landowners really appealed to me. Uh, but kind of circling back to one of your original questions there uh, with how I ended up in Idaho, uh, there again, I I didn't really think I was ever going to end up in Idaho for any reason. But I, uh, when I was at school uh, up at Vermillion Community College, one of the teachers up there had lived in Idaho for several years and really promoted the University of Idaho and you know, so there's a there's a few of us that went out there, and, you know, started researching the college and looked like it, you know, yeah, this is a good place to go. And they have a you know, a wide range of offerings, both kind of on the natural resources side and conservation side agriculture side. It's a really a uh, really good university, so yeah, just thought you know that'll be interesting. Go and you know try a different state, different landscape, and good programs, and yeah,
0: that's great. So, how would you describe your training in grazing management when you went to school? Like, what was, how was it presented, and what what would you say your career? I don't know, curriculum is maybe not the right word to use, but. How would you describe that back when you went to school? And then my follow-up question is how has that changed to where you are now when you're working for producers?
1: Yeah. So so that really that's a good question. Because it's uh a lot of times when you when you go to a college or university, you learn a lot about the concepts and uh and some of the research behind those concepts. So a lot of the at the collegiate level, at least at the University of Idaho, it was, you know, you learn about these concepts, about uh different different grazing management techniques and the research that goes into you know into developing those different grazing management techniques. And you know, you have some some field days or field sessions where you might go out to a a working ranch and of learn about how they apply those principles but usually you know and they were excellent but you know you only have so much time in a college course to really dive into that the practical management side of things right that's where i think the the really the big benefit on the collegiate side was i think one learning how to research things and like okay you you're getting these higher level questions about you know what what is intensive rotational grazing or you know all these or mob grazing or whatever you know there's a multitude of different grazing management practices right that you can look at um and so you, you hear about some of these terms and different management techniques well how you know how does that happen or how how does that work and so you know a lot of times I like to look up some of the research behind some of these different management techniques if right. it's available, some of these, as you know, Jonathan, uh, a lot of times the the producers get ahead of the research, <laughs> right? but even just researching what other producers are doing and 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 learning from producers, I think that's a really valuable key thing because that's really when I got into you know grazing management as a profession. That's really where I learned how to apply that. The research part of it and, and even the, the practical part of my education, the, the application part of my education. Once I was able to really start meeting with producers and learning what they're doing and spending the time to ask them questions about why they do things and see the results of that management. That's where everything really comes together.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, there's, well, there's some more I want to ask you about, but we'll, we'll come back around to that a little bit later. Um, So you're working for a soil and water conservation district in Fillmore County, correct? Yep. How did you get to the NRCS and how did you get to state, Minnesota state grazing Specialist today?
1: Yeah. So, you know, prior to starting my job with the fillmore sloan water conservation district you know i was aware of nrcs before that before that you know just through college and i had talked to a couple of nrcs employees out in idaho just to, like to gauge like you know what they do on a day-to-day basis and you know for me personally if it if it would be something of interest uh, you know, an employer of interest for me. Like, should I apply for jobs in in that agency? But didn't really have that great of knowledge about the inner workings or what they do totally until I worked for Fillmore SWCB because then you know we we're co located with NRCs and I worked really closely with with local NRCs staff, but then also our other uh, the other grazing specialists that NRCS employed at the time. So that's where I really got an in-depth knowledge of, of how uh, what NRCS does and how they work and and different practices they work with. Um, so that was a really valuable experience for me um, just working for the Saltwater Water Conservation District. So I worked for Fillmore SWCD for about two years and then uh, NRCS had, uh, you know, they had a couple of grazing specialist openings uh, after I was with the district for a couple of years. And so I thought, yeah, it'd be good to get on with NRCS as far as, uh, you know, a little bit bigger work area and just, you know, I really liked working on the grazing land side of things. And uh, so I applied for the job in Perm and it ended up getting it and was fairly familiar with kind of the whole maybe not the far northwest part of Minnesota but when I started with NRCS I covered uh, an area in uh, kind of central west central Minnesota so my original territory uh, the east side was at Stearns County area and then I had a band through uh, west central Minnesota to the north and south Dakota border so growing up in that area, uh, I was familiar with at least the east part of my territory, sure. uh, just from growing up in the area and traveling around that area. So that that appealed to me as well, and um, yeah, and just got the got the job in Perm as an area grazing specialist, and then over time through you know just retirements of people moving on my area. Eventually expanded into the entire northwest quarter of Minnesota, um, so which is a pretty large area with a lot of grazing. Uh, so it's really afforded me the opportunity to, you know, meet with a lot of different producers, diverse operations with different livestock types and different landscapes. I mean, you move from central Minnesota to you know far northwest Minnesota, it's it's vastly different, yeah, and yeah. so. It is. that's been yeah been one of the more exciting things i've been able to do just to be able to well like I say one travel around and meet with all these different operations and different uh farmers and ranchers and see what they're doing and and learn from them and help them out but then just uh, work on all the vast array of different landscapes we have in minnesota different soils uh, yeah. Yeah, different different growing conditions. It's been uh, fun and challenging <laughs> throughout my career, and I really enjoyed that. Um, yeah, you know, moving into the the state role, it, it, yeah, it was uh, you know working. You know, of course, now I don't work with farmers one on one nearly as much as I used to. Uh, now I work more with training our staff and and working on developing technical information for our different practices related to grazing so it's uh definitely a little bit different role that way but i still you know still get out out and about meet with uh producers a little bit with some of our other grazing staff and uh, so it's different but i i like this aspect as well Uh, helping our our staff help producers and and just trying to improve our technical information wherever wherever we can
0: uh, do that. Great. That's awesome. So I want to take a few minutes here to let you talk more about the NRCS or Nat- Natural Resources Conservation Service, which is a branch of the USDA. Um, and I'm thinking of someone who actually just reached out to SFA Today for some help, brand new actually to the state. Looking to start doing some farming. And let's just pretend, you know, just pretend for a minute that I, that's me. Explain to me, you know, the history of the NRCS, you know, and then what you all offer as far as assistance to farmers and all the programs. And yeah, I know, I know a little bit of what you guys do, but I'm sure there's some things that I'm going to learn here in the next five minutes about what you guys do. (laughs) So yeah, take a few minutes, just talk about that history of your programs and. And just lay out, you know, what people, what farmers can come to you for help with. Yeah, that sounds good.
1: So uh a brief background history that the NRCS started in uh, I believe 1935 as a soil conservation uh soil erosion service, uh, and then soil conservation service. And it was really in direct relation to uh, the Dust Bowl in the 30s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and trying to combat some of the soil erosion uh, from from those conditions at the time, and of course it it has evolved uh, quite a bit over the years. And and I believe in you know about 1994, change of name to Natural Resources Conservation Service. Over the years, we've really expanded and broadened uh, our uh, efforts into really. All land uses that we have here in Minnesota. So, mainly what we work on is private lands conservation. A lot of that is with agricultural land, whether it be cropland or pasture land. And so, uh, thinking on cropland, it it could be to address soil erosion issues on cropland. So, we have many practices that we could use to. To help with that, uh, from a different uh, you know structures like terraces or waterways, or or it could be to address uh, and help uh, change management practices to help address some some cropland issues. So that could be helping producers uh, transition to no-till or strip-till or um, incorporate cover crops. Um, so there's. I mean, those are just a, a few practices, but, um, you know, really, uh, a wide array of, of management to try and, uh, improve conservation efforts on cropland, um, and, and also pasture. So we, we help with, uh, trying to improve, uh, grazing management on pasture land. And we also, uh, um, work on private forest lands as well. So we have a state forester and a few other uh, foresters in the state that will uh, help address uh, forestry practices, and and there again, there's a, a whole wide array of of forestry practices that we could look at doing to help improve the forest health in in the forest lands. Uh, we also have a lot of wildlife-related practices, so um, which could be. You know, really involve all land uses. Uh, could be a pollinator planting on some cropland. Uh, maybe you're, you're going to uh, kick out of production and plant a, a, a few acres for some pollinator habitat. Or, of course, wide scale um, conservation reserve program, which is the Farm Service Agency program that NRCS provides a technical assistance for, but help with, uh, you know, Grass plantings, uh, uh, tree plantings, uh, you know those those types of things. So, like I say, there's a really any land use, and you know it's all about what what concerns a producer has or or the landowner has. Uh, a customer may not necess- necessarily even be actively involved in agricultural production. They may own land for hunting or wildlife habitat, we could help them uh,
0: meet their goals that way as well. So in fulfilling the programs, you offer technical assistance to the landowner, the operator, the farmer, whoever, and cost, cost share for certain programs or all the programs are describe that that part of it in which programs there's cost share for, Yeah, how that works.
1: So, um, uh, I'll start with uh, just the technical assistance. I mean we help a lot with conservation planning, helping putting plans together to help you meet your land management goals and objectives, help you address resource concerns you know so that that planning has really been the base of of the agency uh, for for many many years uh, but then, Uh, Based upon that plan that we develop with the customer, we also have uh, financial assistance programs available to help implement that plan, to help meet that landowner or operator's goals and objectives. And so a couple of the programs we have available are EQIP and CSP. So EQIP is the Environmental Quality Incentives Program. And so this really helps implement the conservation plan that we're developing to to help meet your your land management objectives or operational objectives that way. So let's say so I'll use an example. Uh, I'll use a grazing example as a grazing specialist. So um, I like I like these example, examples. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So a typical ex- example might be, uh, you know, a, a producer or landowner might stop in our office and they may have heard that we have a program to help improve management or help install some cross-fencing or whatever it might be. That's when I would come in, you know, the, they'll work with the local office and, uh, and and our local office might help them as well uh, develop a, a grazing plan. but. Let's just say they they want my assistance. So I would, they would call me in and work with the landowner uh, to develop a plan. And really, you know, it ultimately starts with what they want to do. And that's usually the first question I I ask um, the customer is, uh, you know, what what are your goals here? What do you what do you want to accomplish? And really, from there we start laying out a plan. So let's say they have a uh an unmanaged pasture that they're trying to improve the grazing management on Mm -hmm. so we'll meet however often we need to meet and work on developing a plan and once we have a a plan that looks like um is acceptable for them and they're ready to move forward with something we'll look at uh equip to help install Let's just say uh, we need need some cross-fencing and more water development. So we might, uh, the, the producer could apply for uh, fencing and maybe some water line and some water tanks, as an example. And so they can sign an application for that program to do that. Okay. And really, they can sign an application at any time. We may have a... A cutoff period once or twice per year for actually looking at all those applications but they sign application at any time and based upon really grazing based upon this plan we put together that's what we'll proceed with when it comes to uh, actually moving forward from an application to ranking an application and and uh, looking at a potential contract so it All of our financial programs are competitive programs so they go through a ranking process and then through that ranking process there's several questions that develop a i guess a ranking score we have programs for that and then um, you know we just start funding applications highest ranking until we
0: run out of money basically (laughs) gotcha okay so an application doesn't necessarily guarantee financial assistance, like you just start with the highest score and kind of work your way until the pool of funding is depleted.
1: That's correct. Yeah. So So
0: what are, what are some ways for folks to get a good score on their application? Is that, is it kind of a team effort on their party and your part working together, or is it more on the producer side or how does that rankings like getting a good score work?
1: it It is both. You know, ultimately, it starts with, you know, so in general, the, the more items you want to accomplish or the more resource concerns that you're trying to address, in general, the higher you're going to score. Okay. Um, but with that, it's also about addressing what the customer or the producer wants to address. So, I mean, because we could add all sorts of things into a contract to try and increase score, increase chances of funding. But at some point, it gets to be, is that really in your best interest? Because right. then, then you have to follow through on all these items. So, it's about finding those things that you really want to address. And, you know, if there's some some additional items we can add in that you maybe have been thinking about. but haven't really thought that much about, but that like, hey, that that might like a as an example, maybe a pollinator habitat planting. That could be a you know variable size. Let's say it's you know two or three acres uh, of a odd part of a crop field or something, and you can square up that field and then create a little bit of habitat there. Those are some things that our local staff might might uh, suggest to a producer that uh, may fit into their operation uh, very well but also help increase their score okay so my yeah so those are things that you try and look for and and like say my suggestion there is just a look for things that you you want to do and you think would be an addition to your operation and um, not try and get yourself roped into things that end up being a burden. <laughs> right. Right, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I'm glad you used the example of Equip because that is the NRC's program I'm probably the most familiar with and have worked with the most with a lot of our grazing clients. So, I'm curious the timeline. So, if we have a producer who is looking to approach you all for some funding on Equip cost share, when we're working with them, what kind of timeline should we tell them to expect and what are some things they need to come to the office ready to expedite their process, like you know, streamline the process and get things rolling?
1: Yeah, so as I said earlier, the application, you can sign the application at any time, any day of the year. Okay. But there are certain times of year when we look at the applications. And I'm not sure what our timeline is for this year, but usually we'll have an application cutoff date for you know basically any application received before that date we'll consider for that funding period and usually it's in the our our application cutoff period will be in the fall might be end of October or maybe end of September or maybe end of November usually in that time frame uh and I'm not uh I should know this but I'm not sure if we've <laughs> if we've identified that yet for this upcoming uh year we'll have a uh, application cutoff period the first one anyway generally in the fall and then we'll have a internally we'll have a like a ranking deadline date where we'll have to have the applications ranked and then we'll start kind of pre-approving applications and then moving towards uh getting contracts signed for those applications that are approved and Usually, we'll we'll start signing contracts in the spring. It does kind of move around a little bit from year to year. Generally, that's a a broad time frame. Okay, and with that, um, so that, that'll be kind of like our first period. We may consider applications that come in after that and future and application deadline periods later in the year, and that that's just uh, dependent on funding. And so, you know the the last four or five years for Equip, you know, funding's been been pretty tight here in Minnesota. We've had a tremendous amount of interest in the program compared to the amount of dollars we've had available. Now, in the next few years, that will likely change. With uh, many people are aware of the Inflation Reduction Act, well. Mm-hmm. Uh, NRCS received a, a lot of funding through that, so we're going to have a lot more money available for our financial assistance uh, programs through EQIP and CSP. Good. Um, so that that I think will be be a big help, because I think in the last couple of years we probably have funded you know just all practices on a statewide basis you know, maybe a third of our applications, give or take a little bit, might be a little bit more than that, but, you know, so we've had a tremendous amount of unfunded applications. So, uh, so there, there, uh, I think that'll change over the next couple of years. We're looking at having a lot more money available, particularly, I think,
0: uh, starting next year. Okay. So what I'm hearing is for folks listening, if you're, you've been on the fence, (laughs) Pun intended about applying for equip. I guess this is the time to put your application in. Is there's going to be funds available to fund a lot more projects?
1: Yeah, the ne- the next few years are are looking pretty good, assuming everything is fully funded as projected. Yeah, so it's it's going to be really good times to to get projects rolling. Yeah, I know I've worked with a number of producers that applied several years in a row and just couldn't get funded and. Yeah, that can be
0: frustrating. So hopefully we can yeah, we can
1: get past that and help get more projects on
0: the on the ground. Sure. And well, I may be calling you up. I may have some project projects of my own that I should put some applications in. So you may be hearing from me. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. Okay, so if someone wants to start the conversation with y'all, what's the best way to do that? Come to the office, go to the website, call like their local service center. All, of the, All above, the above. You okay. <laughs> All right.
1: So, I'll you know just a quick overview. You know, almost every county in Minnesota has uh, has a actual you know fiscal office located within their county. You know, there's a few you know in the far northeast Arrowhead region or or around the metro that may not have a have their own county, but we do have staff that cover every county. Right. So the first step is really identify where your local county is, and if you're unfamiliar with NRCS, you may not know where your or where your county office is. Um, so and that's where uh, you know you can look at our website. You know, search Minnesota uh, NRCS. You should come to uh, our website. There is a place where you can search for for your office location. So you can, I believe, you can. Uh, Search by county, or or uh, click on your county and and find the phone number, address, uh, those uh, that type of information. If you're not sure where uh, where our office is located at, and if you know where it is, you can just stop in or or call if you have the phone number and tell them what you're thinking, what you're looking for, or or what issues you're having
0: and. I will, we'll put a link to this in the show notes. So just check the show notes down below the episode and be linked there. And we'll link a bunch of other resources, any of the resources you want to share with our listeners, Jeff. So, okay. So they can, they can just reach out to the website, find a service center, start the conversation. And uh, the next couple of years are looking good for funding stuff. Sounds like. Yeah. Yep. 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 Cool. Okay. So, I'm sure we could talk a lot more about programs um i kind of want to sh- switch gears here a little bit and talk about drought so much of minnesota is curren- currently experiencing a worsening drought uh, we're d1 right here and parts of minnesota are now in d2 drought so which is coming on the heels two years after 2021 which is a very significant drought for the upper midwest so Let's talk for a little bit about some steps that producers can take to lessen the impact of the drought, their pastures, their livestock, their finances, and, you know, emotional well-being for some or all. Um, So, yeah, what are you seeing out there? Producers, what are you hearing from your staff? And what should folks with livestock, especially in in grazers, be doing right now?
1: Yeah. and Of course, drought is very stressful, stressful time trying to navigate what to do with uh you know looking at the livestock and what to do with the livestock and how what your feed resources are. And I think um you know of course in 2021 with that severe of a drought, which you know, we don't typically deal with drought conditions of that severity very often, but it certainly does happen and we need to plan for it. And that's really where it starts, I think, is is Just do a little pre-planning before we get into severe drought scenarios of of, uh, what you're going to do in a severe drought situation where, you know, your, your pasture production is way down, and so you're going to have less days of grazing from the pasture, and your stored feed resources are likely going to be less, and so... How are you going to be able to navigate those those items? For me, it really comes down to one thing: matching the livestock demand to the forage supply. And I think uh, I think even in normal whatever normal growing conditions are, but in normal growing conditions, non-drought conditions, uh, I think that is a good concept to think about uh, matching. Matching your your livestock demand to your forage supply and how you're how you're going to do that and there's several ways you can do that uh, on a year to year basis and even in a drought situation, uh, but just just thinking about all those different ways you can do it and the economics behind those different ways I think is is really valuable because mm-hmm. of course one way you could do it is to to bring in feed and, and buy feed, and you know and, and I work with a number of operations that do that on a yearly basis, and that's kind of a part of their plan. Of course, in a drought, that's um, kind of becomes a part of everybody's plan, right? <laughs> or or something everybody's looking at. Um, that's where I think you really want to consider consider those options before you're into a drought scenario. Um, Because of when you get into a drought and everyone, especially in a localized area, everybody's going to be looking for feed. So, you know, your feed costs are typically higher. And so you need to really, that's where if you can start planning ahead and think about like, okay, what are the feed costs? How much am I willing to pay for feed? Uh, Or how much is economical to pay for feed? what are the different feed resources available of course we oftentimes think of hay but in a drought scenario are there are there droughted out row crop opportunities that you could harvest and then just you know of course we have um uh, you know multitude of byproduct feeds available they may be available or they may be hard to get can you get some of those like uh, you know uh, beet tailings or or uh you know distillers grain, some right. of those types of things, and um, what are those going to cost? Right. And ultimately, you know, you know, nobody likes to to have to part with animals. But looking at okay, if you get in a severe drought scenario, I I do think it's worth looking at your stocking level and developing a a stocking plan for your for your herd. I think some pre planning. Ahead of a drought goes a long way to help ease some of the stress with that, because wow. if you have an idea now, of course everyone has really good animals, right? Every, everybody <laughs> does. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So there, there's there's no laggards in the herd. Every yeah. every Everyone's so, pulling their
0: weight.
1: <laughs> yep. So, but in reality, every herd has has a few animals that are that you know you could you could part right. with and and uh you know maybe it's ones that you've had on your on your uh, on your call list for this fall, but you're in a severe drought now maybe you call them early. Right. And so just thinking about and uh, you know how and grading your herd, you know I think goes a long way to when you get into these severe drought and say okay, I have these, X amount of animals, you know, 10 head, 20 head, whatever it is that are kind of my lowest producing animals. Those are going to be the ones I'm just, rather than start out with buying feed, I'm just going to part with those animals early on in in a drought. And I think uh, if you can plan ahead for that, that really can help you, you know, because, you know, if you look at, um you know, 2021 as an example, there was a lot of animals that that were sold uh, due to just lack of feed resources and that. And so you you'd like to be on the front end of that mm-hmm. and sell before you stick a lot of feed into that animal, only to sell them later when a lot of other people are also trying to sell Right. into uh, a
0: depressed market.
1: Yes. Yes. Yep. So thinking about the marketing end of those animals and potential markets in a severe extended drought, I, I think is you know worthwhile to think about and then just, you know, like I say, just grading your herd and what animals, if you got into a severe drought, would you sell first? Now, of course, the challenge gets to be, uh, uh, it, it does get more difficult over time you know, usually the first the first ones are the easiest ones to part with, but there are some areas when when 2021 hit, some areas of the state had were in uh, varying degrees of drought for you know two or three years before that, and had already readjusted their stocking levels yeah. and maybe lowered their stocking levels, and it uh, that's where the pre planning. Uh, and thinking about this ahead of time really helps you out because if you've already been cutting back and you've gotten rid of a lot of animals that uh, and your herd is getting a lot more, uh, I don't know the right word, maybe more uniform or more consistent. That's when it gets more challenging on the the calling end. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, planning ahead for how you're going to do that. I, I take really pays dividends. Right.
0: Yeah. I yeah, I hear I hear you saying a lot about early planning and then, you know, early decision making when you're in a drought. Um and I'm just gonna put a plug in here for our listeners. A couple of things you mentioned, Jeff, about like the cost of, you know, feed and you know, having to buy feed versus truck cattle or whatever. So if you want to go back and listen to episode sixty-seven, which was the last episode we released on farm profitability. So Jared and Lumen and I went through uh talking about how to determine farm profitability and run your numbers. So to our listeners, if uh you want an episode on that, I'd encourage you to go back and just listen to, to that episode. So Jeff, back to back to the drought discussion. You know, I've often heard it said it's a lot easier to put wheels under animals and migrate them on a on an 18 wheeler than it is to haul hay to them and i'm assuming you know there's a lot of options for folks to send their animals other parts of the state or even other parts of the upper midwest for custom grazing opportunities is that something you've worked with producers on in the last couple of years
1: you know there um uh, yeah there's some opportunities there and i think uh there again i think Thinking about some of those opportunities before you're you're thrown into that situation of needing it uh, is helpful. Um, but there there's some different resources out there um, that may be able to help. One of them being uh, you know the Minnesota Cropland Grazing Exchange, uh, which is a a website that uh, is housed by the Minnesota Department of Ag. Uh, that, you know, there's several of us that got together and, and you know, kind of built that concept out. And, and, and that website is really uh, a resource, not just for drought, but in all situations. It's, you know, if you're a livestock producer and you're looking for some forage, some pasture, uh, you can put some information on the website. You know, it, it's an interactive map is what it is. So it drops a pin in a uh, location not on your farm it you put in your address and it puts it in the i believe the center of the township that you're located in so it it keeps some privacy there sure. but uh, you know it, it'll put a pin in that location with you know some basic information about you um maybe how in that instance, how far you're wanting to move animals, are you willing to do fence, are you willing to provide water, some of those, what kind of livestock do you have available? Um, and on the flip side, on the crop side, it uh, it can, uh, uh, a crop producer or landowner can list what they have available. Right. So they can, you know, list it, you know, if they have crop residue available, what it is, is there fence, is there water? Uh, you know, just some real basic information and drop a pin on a map. And so that I think is a valuable resource that can be used uh, in a drought or or non-drought situation to help identify potential land that may be available. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I, I, uh, and there's, so that one is specific to Minnesota. So you could uh, search Minnesota cropland grazing exchange and find that yep. there's also a midwest grazing exchange that covers a multi-state area so there may be opportunities to move you know we're we may be in a drought here in minnesota but let's say iowa or wisconsin or the dakotas aren't in drought and so there may be opportunities to, to move livestock out of state right and yep i i know uh A number of producers in in 2021 that actually uh, uh, were able to find some operations. And, of course, that drought was very widespread, but uh, there was uh, some opportunities to move animals out of state in some non-drought affected area that was uh, more economical for for them than trying to bring feed uh, to the herd. So they just brought the herd to the feed. Right.
0: Yep. <laughs> just migrated them on an 18 wheeler. <laughs>
1: yep. Um so there's uh I think there's a lot of opportunities.
0: Yeah, no, thank you for for mentioning those too. We'll we'll put links to the Midwest Grazing Exchange and the Cropland Grazing Exchange in the show notes. So I'm I'm curious about NRCS assistance for drought relief. You all have programs, certain things that you can open up when there's a drought
1: there there may be yeah um you know i'll use that we may have a you know just thinking about past uh past years we may have a allocate some money from equip for areas that are affected by natural disasters like drought or or on the other side excessive flooding we may do some things uh okay. there as well. Um I'm trying to I don't remember exactly what we did in 2021, but I do believe we did uh something through equip for for uh like maybe providing water. Uh of course in a severe drought if you're relying on surface water, a lot of those surface water dried up and you may have actually had feed there. You know, there has been opportunities in the past. Uh, and so, you know, of course, it just kind of depends on what um, what comes up. I guess <laughs> there may also be some programs through the Farm Service Agency as well. Okay, uh, all
0: right. What about opening up CRP ground for grazing? Is that something you guys supervise or?
1: Yeah, so we uh, so uh, the Farm Service Agency administers uh, CRP, and so they make the call on when that will be open for emergency haying or grazing, okay. but we provide the technical assistance NRCS does for um, you know, so if if when we get into that situation where CRP becomes opened up for haying or grazing, a producer that maybe has access to to some CRP ground will come in to the local service center and and start that process with the farm service agency. And then we'll just Put the plan together to help them through what they're going to do. Uh, you know, so like on grazing, and uh, I'll just give an example. Uh, let's say you have a a CRP, and you have forty cows. We'll give you an idea about how long that acreage will sustain your carrying capacity animals. of
0: the the CRP ground in question.
1: Yep, and there is some other. I mean, there is some program specific requirements that have to be sure. met there and we'll walk producers through that um, but certainly that is and i know in uh 2021 that did get utilized mm-hmm. uh the emergency haying and grazing and mm-hmm. and so if we get into a drought situation like that that could come available again sure and i guess uh with that it would be i'll just add on to that that um contact your local farm service agency about emergency grain grazing and haying if that's been opened up or not and there's also opportunities to graze and hay for a payment reduction as well if it's not opened up for emergency grazing or haying you know typically the emergency is there's no payment reduction but the non-emergency they'll usually have a payment reduction
0: okay that makes sense Excellent. Well, we're coming up here on an hour. Um, So I'm going to try to start wrapping up here soon. Although I feel like we could probably go for quite a while yet. We haven't really even touched on a lot of grazing management or ecology stuff that I wanted to talk about, but we'll maybe have to save that for another conversation down the, down the road. I'm kind of curious your, your thoughts on where we are at with like grazing management and what do you think the future, what do you think the next five to 10 years hold for grazing managers, folks like yourself working in grassland management. I feel like we're kind of in some exciting times, you know, research has been done to show the positive effects of adaptive grazing, multi-paddock grazing, rotational grazing, whatever term you want to use to describe it, you know, from your days going to school till now, you've seen, I'm sure a lot of change in how we approach it. So yeah, give us a little where where you're at with what the future holds for grazing and what are some exciting things we should be looking forward to in the future?
1: Yeah, and I I think um I think grazing management and 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 improving grazing management is really going to be key moving forward and just simply due to for for no other reason, just land competition and land value. I I think uh trying to improve productivity, optimize productivity with improved management. And I would say just optimize the carrying capacity of that land is going to be key just with the competition for land and the cost of land. And I think it's, you know, grazing management from a conservation standpoint. So just thinking about NRCS and why we provide that assistance there. So we're we're really looking at it from uh um, you know, from a conservation standpoint, there's a tremendous amount of benefits to grazing management. But it's also one of those practices that I think has a tremendous potential to not only improve conservation side of things from uh, water quality, reducing soil erosion, but also on the production side, improving productive potential. And then going all the way to the economic side, I think improving profitability just by improving uh increasing the number of days of grazing and uh, improving productive potential of the land uh so whether that's increased grazing days or increased carrying capacity i, I think from a just a production you know just and farm management standpoint it makes a lot of sense and and there's really a lot of exciting things going on there and you hit on some of that already Jonathan there's been a lot of research coming out in the last you know five to ten years and even 10 to 20 years that really are showing these benefits and I'm I'm excited to see more more of the research come out but then just you know just what producers are doing on their own farms is showing um, showing that these management practices really do work mm-hmm. and I mean that's really exciting. I know one thing I've seen uh, in my career is I'll I'll start working with an operation in a neighborhood where uh, I haven't worked before and they really make some excellent management changes and see some really good positive results and a couple years later I start working with a lot of the neighbors as they drive by and see well boy that really worked for For my neighbor over here i want to see what i can do with my place
0: that's awesome (laughs) yeah
1: yeah so i think we're you know we're seeing a lot of that just that peer-to-peer contact Mm and you know farmers learning from each other and then uh you know organizations like sfa and other other organizations doing field days and pasture walks is trying to get more of the educational resources out there I mean the amount of of you know field days and pasture walks to help producers and landowners learn about these practices is phenomenal now compared to 15 years ago I, I mean there was and, and I and I think that's great because that's a kind of a missing component both the you know Farmers learning from farmers, and and then just the opportunities in group settings to learn from each other. Right. Uh, yep. And so I'm I'm glad to see all those efforts uh, going forward because I think that's really helped promote better grazing management.
0: Right. Yeah. What you just said—that's SFA's tagline, the farmer to farmer network—and that's that's what we do. So it's it's cool to see that you're seeing that on the ground as well. Just the farmers learning from each other and just what a positive impact that can be. Well, we're going to wrap up here. Jeff, do you have any last minute thoughts or resources you want to share with folks, listeners? We can link these in the show notes or share them later. We've talked about some of the cropping grazing exchange and NRCS homepage. Is there anything else? Books? I don't know. Anything you found helpful in your, in your career?
1: Yeah. You know, there, I think the, the best, resource i i can say or what i'll leave you with is you know just don't be afraid to reach out to others and ask questions whether that be neighbors or nrcs or sfa or whoever anybody that you think or or maybe that you don't think uh, you know just seek out and ask people questions to try and learn about because you know there's there's a lot of resources out there. And once you start searching for them, you you really find out that there's way more than you you probably even were aware of. So that's where I was kind of going with the, right. (laughs) not that people don't think, but that like, there's a lot of resources out there that, uh, you know, and just uh, attend, attend some of the field days and pasture walks to learn, you know, there's a lot of good resources on, on the internet, Um, you know, well, Good and 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 maybe not so good, but so yeah. (laughs) Trying to identify maybe some of the the uh, better ones. I know like we have a and Minnesota NRCS has a YouTube channel where we have uh, have uh, quite a few videos out there on grazing management and just showcasing some of the producers that we've worked with. Uh, So that can be uh, an excellent resource and. I think seek out any, uh, if you have questions, seek out anybody and everybody that you can and, and ask questions and try and get some feedback. And
0: because yep. chances are, if you've had the question, somebody else has added to. Yep. Yeah. It's Minnesota. I feel like is either, well, either really blessed or lucky, whatever you want to say, as far as organizations like SFA and, the resources available. I talk to producers in other states occasionally, and it's it's a they don't have in some states what we're lucky and blessed to have here in Minnesota. So take advantage of what you have, and we even have people from out of state coming in or seeking out you know SFA's um, network and resources. So that's been great. We have a grazing school coming up in September, September fifteenth and sixteenth. And uh, Jeff, a little bird may have told me you might be making an appearance there. Is that true? I will
1: be. Yeah.
0: That will be great. So if you want to meet Jeff for the first time or learn from him or any of the other speakers we've got lined up, check out the website um, for the grazing school. It'll be in uh, Wadena, Verndale area, September 15th and 16th. So so Jeff, thank you so much for being with us today. We appreciate all the work you all do and all your staff at NRCS. And we always look forward to working together with you. And uh, yeah, this has been a great episode. So thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. So that was Jeff Duchesne, Minnesota State Grazing Specialist with the NRCS. So check out the show notes for links to the resources that we mentioned. And as always, feel free to reach out to info at sfa-mn.org with questions or comments on this episode. Also check out our website, sfa-mn.org for more information on us, resources, and upcoming events for you and your farm. We'll look forward to being with you in our next episode. Rich is produced by the Sustainable Farming Association. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider supporting us by making a donation or becoming a member at sfa-mn.org. Thanks for listening.